Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club, the podcast dedicated to the chiropractic legacy of Dr. Clarence Gonstead. We had to take a few weeks off, but today I'm going to make it up to you with a very special guest. My guest today is Dr. Herb Wood. Dr. Wood's Gonstead experience goes all the way back to the early days of Gonstead Advanced Techniques, and he's one of the ever-shrinking pool of doctors we have that learn from Dr. Gonstead himself. These days, Dr. Wood spends most of his time teaching technique seminars all over the country and even all around the world. So today seemed like a perfect opportunity to talk technique with him and to discuss the details of some of the most difficult adjustments we do. So without any further ado, Dr. Herb Wood. Dr. Wood, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Dave. Thanks for inviting me. Could you start off by telling us a little about how you got into chiropractic and more specifically how you ended up in Gonstead Chiropractic? Sure. Um, I, I, I just uh, feel really blessed that, uh, that I was led this way. Um, all my growing up years, um, my goal in life was to become a Marine. And um, so after I graduated from high school, I uh, joined the Marine Corps, 1968, and <clears throat> I was intending on doing 30 years there. And as soon as I got into boot camp, I knew that I wasn't going to do that for 30 years. So fortunately, I had only signed up for two years. <clears throat> so when I got out. Um, I really didn't have any idea what I was going to do. Uh, I joined a civic organization uh, called the JCs, and the president of that group was a uh, chiropractor, my field doctor. His name was Gary Foff. He was in a little mm -hmm. uh, town called Laurel, Montana. It's about 10 miles west of Billings. And a solid Gunstead doctor, he'd already had, I don't know, 30 or 40 seminars under his belt by that time. And... Um, Anyway, I went in one day to talk to him about a project with the civic group and ended up staying there five or six hours. And uh, between patients, he would talk to me about chiropractic and um, talked about the cause and effect. And um, I thought that was a, a unique concept um, pertaining to health there. So uh, when I left his office that uh, evening, I went over to the library and they didn't have any information on chiropractic in it. So I uh, wrote a letter to the school and asked for some information. And uh, they sent me a packet um, about two weeks later with an uh, um, application enclosed. And uh, I filled out the application uh, really very non-wittingly and I sent it in. And they called me a week later and said, be here October 8th, and we'll get you started. And uh, so shortly after that, I bought a train ticket to uh, Rock Island and I rode a train out from Montana to Rock Island and uh, started my, uh, my chiropractic college. Uh, one month later, um, my field doctor uh, called me and invited me to attend my first Gonstead seminar. I said, uh, Gary, I said, uh, I don't think I'm 
probably really at a point where I'm going to learn anything. Uh, I, I hardly know what chiropractic is. He said, no, I said, don't worry about it. He said, well, we'll put you into the beginner's x-ray class uh, with Dr. Alex Cox and um, you, you'll have a good time. So uh, he arranged for uh, Dr. Larry Troxell and his wife to give me a ride up to the seminar. Um, and then he paid for uh, my hotel stay and all my food, <laughs> just took real good care of me. Uh, so I sat in on uh, the x-ray class, and by the end of the weekend, I knew how to analyze an x-ray. And uh, so I thought that was pretty cool, and uh, only one month into uh, college and knowing that. And uh, so I started comparing other techniques, started attending all kinds of club club meetings on campus, and, and I just never found anything that quite matched up to the uh, science an analysis of the Gonstead work. And so one of the other things that he uh, set up for me was uh, my chiropractic care during college. Um, he set that up with Larry Troxell to uh, take care of me as well. Uh, so I was exposed uh, to Gonstead quite early on and and to one of the best, a uh, couple of the best doctors uh, in, in Gonstead chiropractic. And um, so I I, I just decided that Gunstead was the way I was going to go. I never bothered with any of the other techniques after that. And um, ended up interning with Troxel for about a year and a half before I took an associate with him for about six years. Uh, and then went on my own after that. So yeah, that's, that's great. That was, um, and now you kind of you teach your own seminars now. So I wanted to give you a chance to talk about that a little bit and, this, and what you've been doing with your seminars and your boot camps and how those work. Sure. Um, well, I've, I've taught ever since I was uh, in my last uh, year at Palmer. Um, I, uh, when I was still in school, I taught other students. And then um, Larry and I uh, started teaching seminars after I graduated. Uh, we did that for... Uh, probably eight or ten years after after the, I graduated, and um, along with the Gunst Advanced Technique seminars, um, and then the GMI seminars. Uh, when I moved to Colorado, um, I kind of got away from teaching for a few years uh, to set up my new practice, and really started missing it quite a bit. So I decided to set up um, my own set of seminars which I call the Dr. Wood Seminars. Um, so the uh, um, I, I call each series um, a series of six seminars, and uh, we try to cover uh, all of the basics of the Gunstead technique from A to Z. Uh, we have about 25 hours of what I call classroom work, where we go over some books that I wrote. I wrote, uh, wrote four. Uh, spiral books on um, uh, different aspects of the technique and x-ray and case management, symptom vertebral correlations, the nervous system. Um, the first one is the Gonstead Basics, um, in which we cover all aspects of uh, the, um, um, you know, the basic fundamentals of the Gonstead work. And uh, the fourth book is on um, extremities and uh, the knee chest high-low work. 
I also made two, um, or excuse me, five uh, DVDs on the technique. Um, let's see, I do have a push and a pull move video. I have the cervical chair and extremity and a knee chest video. Um, and so those are all part of my, my seminar um, series that I, I uh, give around the, around the country. I have, uh, currently I have uh, seven groups that I do, uh, six seminars at each group. Uh, two of them are, are um, kind of between series right now. Um, so I travel about 35 to 40 weekends a year, um, teaching uh, usually either at the college uh, on campus or at a seminar near the campus. Uh, so I've been doing that now for, Seven years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I I know you do some out of the country too, and so I'm kind of curious when you when you do them out of the country, what kind of do you notice any differences between students in other countries versus students here, or just the environment of chiropractic itself? Um, let's see. Well, uh, I've taught in. Um, Japan a couple times um, and in Korea and um, two years ago I did a seminar in uh, China in Shanghai and then last year in May did a seminar in um, Valencia, Spain um, and I'm going back there four times next next year we have four seminars planned um, uh, it's really kind of uh, different environments, uh, especially in, in Korea and Japan. Uh, um, chiropractic's not licensed there. Um, and for the most part, um, the uh, GCSS doesn't um, uh, allow teaching of the Gonstead work uh, at uh, colleges that do not um, that are not part of the CCE um, accrediting agencies, either European or, or um, United States. Um, so they're kind of limited as to what they get uh, as far as Gunstead or really any real straight chiropractic goes. Um, most of those, uh, especially Japan and, and Korea are dominated by uh, massage and physical therapists and bone setters and all kinds of alternative type therapies. Like, like in Korea, the, there's a hundred and somewhere around 180 uh, members of the Korean Chiropractic Association, but there's 30,000 members of the other organization that are all a mixture of alternative care. Um, so it's been difficult for Korea and, and Japan, kind of the same same circumstance. Kind of difficult for them to get the upper hand and and get noticed in the government uh, for licensure and accreditation. Yeah, China's really just emerging. There's there's no chiropractic colleges there, and um, I think um, I was the first. Gunstead seminar ever put on there, um, but it wasn't people from Japan that attended. It was mostly chiropractors from around the eastern um, 
or excuse me, around the um, Pacific Rim. We had uh, some from Australia, Malaysia, Hong Kong, Singapore, Japan, of course, Korea, um, uh, that all came to that uh, seminar in, in Shanghai, which is good. We, we had a five day, it's the longest seminar I've ever done, five day, 40 hour seminar. I was wore out by the end of that that week. Um, then in Europe, in, uh, when we did um, in our seminar in Spain last year, mm-hmm. um, there's two chiropractic colleges there, I think, in, one's in Barcelona, one's in Madrid. We had several chiropractors come down from uh, Holland, Germany, uh, Paris, uh, up from um, Greece, uh, some, uh, there's a few there, of course, from Spain as well. Uh, one from uh, the Ivory Coast in Africa. Um, they, 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 of course, have a lot better understanding of chiropractic, and uh, most of their colleges are, are accredited. Um, so they get exposure from the Gonstead Seminar, from um, uh, I think uh, GCSS, I think, puts on a, a seminar or two over there each year. And um, and then with mine. So those are all approved seminars that they can get credit for. Uh, Gonstead work that goes toward acquiring their diplomate or uh, fellow if they want. Yeah. Yeah, we, we have a lot of people listening in some of those other countries. So that's good for them to know resources and places they can get more more teaching and education. Oh, good. Um, well, hey, if you're, if you're anywhere in Europe and want to attend my seminar, <laughs> get in touch with me. <laughs> the, um, uh, you, you briefly mentioned GAT. And so one of the things I'm always curious about is back in those early days, when what was the environment like? And did you guys know that you were um, sitting around greatness and you were learning these great and wonderful things? Or were you just trying to learn everything you could just to try to be the best you could be and maybe didn't even know what you were sitting in. Was there an awareness of that? Did you know that the other people around you, that everybody was going to be moving forward into something amazing or what was that? What is that? What was that environment like? You mean while Dr. Gonstead was still alive or? Yeah. And doing some of the work with GAT and just being surrounded with these guys who had really kind of already excelled a little bit. Yeah. Um, Well, definitely um, is the cream of the crop. I mean, most of the guys that, uh, I was the I was the <laughs> I was the baby of the group. Uh, uh, most of the guys that were part of that had anywhere from probably forty to sixty or seventy seminars by that point. Um, but yeah, I, um, uh, as I looked around and saw the people that were attending the the JT and were um, part all part of that, um, yeah. They, they were just doctors that were seeing uh, hundreds and hundreds of patients a week, and all of them were expert in their in their application of the uh, the technique itself, and all very willing to give of themselves hundred uh, percent any time they were asked. Um, I think that came a lot from Dr. Gonstead. Um, you know, he was just uh, uh, he was just 100% chiropractic all the time. 
anytime he had a question, even if we were sitting eating lunch, you know, I kind of felt sorry for him after a while. We'd break for lunch on Friday or Saturday and go over and eat at the care call in. And inevitably, doctors would, or students would even walk by and stop and ask him questions. And so he, I don't think he ever finished a meal uh, during lunch break, during seminar weekends, <laughs> uh, because people would just uh, stop and ask him questions all the time, walking down the hall. You know, and he would just stop, and it didn't matter what, you know, whether he was going to see a patient or he was going to into the seminar room and start teaching again. He, he took whatever time it took uh, to answer the questions, make sure the person had a satisfactory response to whatever they were interested in asking. And uh, so that I think that carried over into all of us. Um, yeah, I mean, we, it was it was hard to hard to comprehend and. Uh, understand how uh, Dr. Gunstead did all the things that he did. Um, I was trying to figure out last weekend on the plane going out to um, Atlanta, um, figuring out how many p patients that he potentially saw during that 50 years of practice. And um, it, it, depending on how many people I, I put in per day, either 200 or 300, you know, it ranged from uh, three and a half million to four and a half million uh, patient visits that he had in his lifetime. You know, I, I think about my piddlies, uh, a few hundred thousand visits that I've had. <laughs> That's such a difficult number to comprehend. <laughs> it is. You know, and it, when you put your own number next to it, it uh, you, you see how much um, uh, uh, just just how far above us uh, that he was and uh, how much uh, information uh, about his work and about taking care of people that went to the grave with him. Um, yeah, it's a... Uh, um, it's kind of a, it's a humbling... Um, thought there to, to realize the magnitude of uh, what Dr. Gonstead did. Um, but even so, we, you know, we try to do our best and, and uh, we just hope that he smiles at us uh, every night before we go to bed, thinking that we've uh, done the right thing for our patients every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so today, what I really would like to do is talk about some technique troubleshooting, uh, because I get a lot of technique questions from students, uh, and then sometimes they'll even ask me, well, what would Dr. Wood say? I'm like, well, I don't know, so let's ask him. <laughs> so um, so I'm going to give you a few of these, and we're going to shoot through the, basically the whole body, but we're going to find some of the key things where people seem to struggle. Uh, this question, in fact, I was just asked yesterday. So I answered it the best I could, but I'd be curious to hear your answer to it. The question was, when you get a scope reading at L5, how do you know if it's really L5 or if it's actually the SI joint or even the sacrum making that L5 show up? Well, that, that, um, this is one of the reasons why we uh, want to put a BB on our readings before we take our film. 
um, because that will show you uh, exactly where the nerve, uh, where that reading or BB is in relationship to the uh, uh, IVF of the L5 S1 articulation. Um, so there really, there really shouldn't be any question if you put a BB on there and and mark that. Um, if you're doing the, if you're doing your scoping procedure properly, you know there's a there's a speed limit for using the scope. Um, there's one speed limit in the cervicals and another for the rest of the spine. And uh, so in the cervicals, you want to go one vertical inch for every three seconds of glide. And then in the thoracics and lumbars, it's uh, one, vert uh, one vertical inch for every two seconds of glide. Um, and then when in the cervicals, when you mark uh, after you've, after you've uh, uh, run the, the instrument three times at least, on the third time, uh, when you see the reading that third time, you stop and then mark that reading one quarter inch below the probe. And then in the thoracics and lumbars, since you're going a little bit faster, you mark it a half inch above the uh, probe after you've glided the area at least three times again. And uh, so if you do that, uh, that's like I say, that's one of the main things with scoping. Uh, you should get your uh, readings consistently occurring at the IVF level. Uh, when they when they are consistently there, then you know you're you're scoping your patients correctly. And so when you do that, then uh, there shouldn't be any question as to whether you're on fifth lumbar or farther down onto an SI. Mm -hmm. yeah, and with that question, I was also asked this question, which I know a lot of students ask. So I think students will like to hear the answer to this. Um, does the scope ever show you compensations or does it only show subluxations? Well, uh, a lot of heat swings, I think, are, are probably con uh, compensations. Um, yeah. And those, uh, those heat swings, um, as you go over the skin with the instrument that second, third, and fourth time, a lot of those heat swings will go away and the uh, reading becomes quite evident. Um, you know, it'd be nice if all the instrument readings were, you know, six, eight, ten point readings. Uh, yeah. But my experience has been there one, two or three point readings uh, hidden inside of 10 or 15 point heat swings. Yes. But the, the more faithful we are in our glide speed and in repeating this, the glide at least three uh, or four times, those heat swings start to go away, uh, or at least they change um, with each glide. But a true reading isn't going to change. It's going to stay right there and usually becomes more evident on the third or fourth glide. Yeah. I always tell students to look for the subtleties because I think a lot of times, they're like you said, they're looking for the big heat swing. And they're and actually what they're doing is just reading the, the apex of the heat swing. They're not seeing the little flickers that happen inside of those. Yes. That are, that are more, more. And then even the subtlety of like the first question I asked you, that yes, an SI joint reading might look like an L5 initially, 
but you'll find that there's a difference, even if it's just a millimeter in, in location. So you have to be really precise on exactly where is the reading happening, not just mark somewhere in the general area. Like really get it precise because that's telling you exactly where that heat swing is. Yeah. Yeah, the, the instrument is such a wonderful, wonderful tool for us. Um, I always tell my, my students um, uh, that Dr. Gonstead one day said, if I didn't have an instrument, I wouldn't uh, practice chiropractic. Hmm. Yeah. And when you stop and think about the importance of that statement, man, what what would have we missed? <laughs> you know, had he stopped practicing if there was no instrument available? Yeah, I think I've told this story before, but I was I had two scopes and one of my scopes broke. So I was working on my backup scope and I don't remember what happened. I think I dropped it or something and I broke my backup scope. So I had to order a third scope. But before the third scope could show up, I had patients scheduled and I had no scope. And that day I was I was lost, totally lost. Like I just kept thinking there's so much information. Like I never really understood how much information I'm getting that when I don't have it, I truly miss it. And I was yeah. like, all right, I'm canceling patients till that other scope shows up. <laughs> because I can't function like this. It just isn't going to work. Uh, yeah, it's very true. I, I, I feel the same way. Uh, like when uh, patients uh, come in, like a transient patient comes in, they're in Colorado, uh, you know, vacationing and, and uh, they get hurt or something. And, and uh, they call their chiropractor back home and he, they give them my name and they come in and you know, I don't have the x-ray. Maybe even the chiropractor's against the doctor and they send the listings. But if I don't have the x-ray in front of me, uh, I don't feel that I can give a, a, my 100% um, adjustment. Um, there's just so much information that we get from these different tools, um, especially the the uh, scope and the x-ray, um, that that either either... Uh, either one can guide us to the subluxation and and how to fix it. You know, the, the x-rays are is a blueprint. Um, even if they're just a transient patient, you're only going to see them once or twice. Um, that blueprint is so important um, in uh, allowing us to give that patient 100% of our best to help them with their condition that they bring in that day. Yeah, I agree. And I don't know how you feel about this, but I felt like a, a grumpy old man when everything went from um, film x-ray to digital, <laughs> because I was like, no, those things are garbage. There's no depth perception. I can't see on the digital. I want my film. And I would, I would always be twisting the films to try to get depth perception. And so when I first started getting digital films, Everybody would look at me funny because I'd be squirming and they're like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm trying to see around that corner, but I can't see around that corner. <laughs> and I hated it. And I've yeah. kind of come around a little bit, but I still to this day would tell you I, if I had a choice, I prefer an actual film film over a yeah. digital film. Yeah, that's, that's what I tell my students all the time. I said, man, I said, uh, you know, you guys are already 200,000 plus in debt when you get out of chiropractic college. Why not? Why not get a hold of a of an analog X-ray and a uh, developer 
for $1,500 or $2,000 instead of spending $40,000 for a digital to put yourself that much further in debt. Just get in, open your door, and then if you feel you need to get one later on, go ahead and do that. But gosh, get in, get your door open, get in, get practicing um, as soon as you can. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, especially when you're first starting, I think it's easy to want to cut corners. But when you're first starting, for me, shooting films all the time for the first 10 years, the amount of knowledge I gained. And the, I, I honestly believe my adjustments got better because of the x-rays, because I began to understand in three dimensions what was happening. And I just oh, feel absolutely. Like all these things that you don't even know how your brain's doing it, but it all starts incorporating what you're feeling with palpation and what you're feeling with your adjustment and what you're seeing on the x-ray and what the symptoms are. It all starts correlating your brain and it, it starts making sense out of things that seem to be nonsensical. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, something I was going to say earlier about Gunstead. You know, if we, um, you know, when we think of the days that we, um, days and weeks that we, we saw um, our highest volume of patients and, um, you know, everybody was keeping their appointments and we were on time and, you know, it got where you could walk into a room and, and uh, you know, you could kind of just start to sense things. Um, you know, you were right with the patient and you were PTC with them and giving them a hundred percent of your three or four minute time interval. And, and, um, you know, you could just feel the energy, um, in that kind of an atmosphere. And, um, so when I was on the plane, I was also thinking about that atmosphere of seeing, you know, 200 to 300 patients a day. And, um, what that what that energy must have felt like for Dr. Gunstead. I'm sure it became a little bit of you know secondhand to him after so many years. But um, on the other hand, I think, well, gosh, maybe maybe this is what fed him and kept him kept him uh, um, being able to see patients six days a week, six and a half days a week, uh, the way he did. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's important, um, that we, uh, develop that experience and help as many people as we can. And, um, the x-ray and scoping and our five-step process there, the Gunstead approach, uh, four-step process and Gunstead approach, um, will guide us to that subluxation almost without fail every time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about some technique stuff. Um, and we'll start with the seated cervical, since that's the thing that for a lot of people becomes synonymous with Gonstead, as though that's all we do. Yep. <laughs> At my school, that's what they said. Oh, Gonstead, they just do seated cervicals. Like, there's a little <laughs> bit more to it than that. but okay, A little we'll bit, there. yeah. <laughs> um, but seated cervicals are an interesting one because, uh, and I hear this from students all the time, that, and I hadn't really thought about it before until it was brought up to my attention, that probably of all the Gonstead adjustments, when we see different people who call themselves Gonstead doing this adjustment, the seated cervical might be the one with the greatest amount of variance. And so for a lot of students, they feel as though that variance is one of the things that makes it hard for them to learn and master the seated cervical. And so the question I often get is, well, what makes it right? And then what makes other things wrong? So when we're doing a seated cervical, what is the primary thing we're trying to accomplish that would define how we're doing it right. 
So I know that's probably not a very clear question, but what what are, what is the prime? What are we, what are we trying to do most of all? What makes a good C to cervical adjustment? I guess is really my question. Well, I, I, I'm trying to think back since we're talking so much about Gunstead. I'm trying to think back of the things that he would say about learning the cervical adjustment. And I think there's two. Um, um, the first one being uh, the hand positioning of the doctor. Um, you must maintain um, uh, support of that contact finger by having the other three fingers uh, right below it. Um, he talked about having a, a little bit of a cup in the palm of the hand, the um, um, middle, fourth, and fifth finger below the uh, index finger supporting it, and ulnar deviation. Um, and with the hand in that position, we would be able to best lift the vertebra um, and uh, set that set that vertebral body onto the disc below. As the as the ulnar deviation comes out of the wrist, and we lift upward, that puts us through the posterior joints, and allows us to set the body forward onto the disc below. And the second thing that allows that to happen is stabilization. Yes. We have uh, really four points of stabilization uh, with our um, with our setup. We've got our contact point. We've got the thumb on the angle of the jaw. Um, we have our um, stabilization hand, uh, the opposite hand on, on the other side of the patient's um, head and neck there. And then we have the head to chest. Um, I don't think you'll ever see a video of Dr. Gunstead doing a cervical adjustment without the head up against his chest. Yeah. Um, so hand positioning, line of drive, stabilization, um, they, they just all go together. Um, you know, part of the stabilization is, is our, is our tissue pull. When we, when we uh, do our tissue pull, um, for instance, if we have a PRS listing, uh, when we stand behind that patient and do our tissue pull, we're probably going to use our left thumb to pull that tissue uh, across from right to left, across the spinous from right to left, obliquely superior. Uh, as we set our contact point, we kind of screw the contact point on the uh, index finger up underneath the, the uh, spinous. Uh, and I say screw, we kind of torque it right up underneath there because that's what we're going to do with our thrust as well, is that we're going to, we're going to lift and torque it. Um, so um, uh, that's a lot of our tissue pull right there, just setting the contact on after we pull the tissue in the direction. Now, once we get that contact point onto that spinous, you have to uh, uh, get that patient's head to your chest right away and your hand, other hand, your stabilization hand up to the patient's chin right away and then gently pull them back toward you as you lean toward them, toward the head with your chest. 
And so this is going to provide some of our best stabilization uh, as we move through the rest of the setup and then, and then uh, uh, rotate our stabilization hand around to get ready to do the actual adjustment. The tissue pull stabilization, um, position of the fingers of the hand so that they're inferior to one another. Uh, those are all so important in getting the, the uh, motor unit to, um, to move <laughs> in the way that we want it to. And then when we, uh, well, since we're on this topic, when, when we have a lamina contact, um, the contact point for a lamina, for most lamina, is not way out behind the, the uh, transverses or way out on the end of the lamina. Uh, the contact point for a lamina contact is just barely off the spinous. So when we do our tissue pull, let's say we have a PLI-L, when we pull our tissue from left to right, and we come across that spinous, as soon as we're off that spinous, we should be stopping. And um, what this allows us to do is to um, almost act like a spinous contact in that we can uh, lift the vertebral body more P to A, I to S, and onto the disc below it. Whereas the further out we move onto that lamina transverse area, the more likely we're just going to get rotation. So right. best to stay in close to the spinous for most lamina contacts. Now, there's always the exception, um, although rotation and wedging are not usually a big factor in the cervicals. The, um, uh, there are patients that come in with, with uh, one or both of those. And so for those, it, it is better to get out just a little bit further. Um, but I, I don't, I don't ever recall getting way out to the transverse to adjust a cervical vertebra for rotation ever. It's always been fairly close to the center next to the spinous. And um, that way we can set that vertebra P to A, you know, I to S onto the disc below it. It's such a big factor that we miss it. You know, people talk about getting a hoop and soccer once in a while. Well, you'll get a hoop and soccer much more frequently when you start adjusting vertebra onto the disc instead of just rotating posterior joints. Yeah. So if we're going through the plane line of the joint, through the plane line of the disc or SI joint, those vertebra or pelvic bones are going to sit much deeper and we're gonna see changes in our patients in one or two adjustments. You know, it's not gonna take, you know, uh, two or three weeks of adjusting before we get a good response, we should start seeing good changes within a few adjustments on most of our patients. And the only way that happens is if we can get that good P to A, I to S, um, through the plane line of the joint onto the body of the vertebrae adjustment. Yeah, and then from the setup to the, to the actual adjustment, a question I often get from students is, are we lifting and then going P to A? Are we going P to A and then lifting at the end? Or are we doing equal amounts of lift and P to A the whole time? In the cervicals? Yes. Yeah, uh, probably the last thing that goes through my mind as I adjust uh, a patient in the cervicals is, am I, is my hand in a position 
and my my lift uh, as I start to prepare to adjust is that lift going through the posterior joints first. So uh, I to S is probably uh, the first thing that happens as you're going P to A. Um, I guess I, that'd be the best way I could explain it. Yeah, I, I remember back years ago, I don't know if it was you or Dr. Katona or somebody taught us that a good motion is if you were holding a Frisbee and it was hanging down and you were going to throw that Frisbee without getting any momentum and you would just flick your wrist to try to throw that Frisbee. It's that so that it's initially a lot of I to S, a little bit of P to A, and it transitions to a lot of P to A, a little bit of I to S as you go forward. Yep. Yeah, that's fair to, fair to say that. That's uh, that's always worked pretty good for me. I never really got very much progress in my cervicals until I started doing that. And I actually kind of used some stepping stone. We'll call them cheats um, where I would um, I would make sure that when I before I adjusted my enti the entire back of my fingers, all four of my fingers were on the were touching the patient's back. That, uh -huh. And that's lined me up to do a lot of I to S. So then yep. I would initially thrush, uh, thrust up and then flick over the top. And then as I got better at it, I started bringing those fingers up and going a little more with the straight P to A. And of course, there's some vertebra when you're like you're doing a, a T1 or a T2, you might be going really flat, not much IDS at all. So you start figuring out the variances in those things. But to start with, it was like, I'm just going to take this thing up and then I'm going to take it forward and hope for the best. And that's kind of how <laughs> I got started. Yeah. Well, uh, that that's a lot of the cervical adjustment is just... Uh, getting that I to S first. Um, it, it's difficult for most people just learning the, the chair work uh, to keep those fingers down because they want to hold that head so that they feel like they're more in control. But if they get the other stabilization points that I previously mentioned here, if they get those down real well, then, then uh, they don't feel as much like they have to bring those fingers up to the occipital area to kind of help stabilize. Yeah, a, a tip you guys gave me a long time ago was when you're all comfortable and you're ready to thrust, then drop your elbow another inch. <laughs> you're not yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's another one because that, that definitely has, has to be, the forearm has to be a little bit eye to ass to help you accomplish that, that line of drive. And, and it's really mechanical. I mean, as far as, you know, if you hold your, if you, if you hold your uh, elbow about three inches away from your side, and you hold your hand the way I described earlier with the fingers one below the other, and all you do is bring the elbow to your side, that, that's gonna give you that I to S line of drive automatically. I mean, that, that's just a mechanical movement. Mm -hmm. and, and so if we just keep the fingers on that I to S and bring the elbow to the side, that's gonna lift it. And then all we have to do is move that elbow forward a little bit, and that's gonna provide the P to A onto the disc. And then if there's a wedge, then you torque it a little bit. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah but um, of course we never hold our arm that far away from the body when we're adjusting the cervical, it should be tucked in right next to the body. Cause we're, I mean, we're, we're actually only moving the bone, what, an eighth of an inch maybe. Yeah. So the elbow doesn't have to be three inches away from your side. It needs to be tucked in next to your, body so you get that p to a and i to i to s line of drive yeah yeah you don't have to take the patient from a seated position to a standing position so you don't need <laughs> quite that much force <laughs> um, another uh another um 
trouble spot a lot of people seem to have trouble with is pull moves. So um, we can start with lumbar pull moves because I think this was another big thing and you've mentioned already before and, and we've talked about we've on the podcast we've talked about stabilization before, but we haven't off we talked about a lot with cervicals. We haven't talked about it as much with lumbars. And I think that one of the biggest pieces of help I ever got um, from you and the guys that I worked with was the importance of stabilization on lumbars. And once I started understanding how to stabilize a push move properly, all of a sudden I could start doing pull moves because I think the push move might be a little bit more forgiving of bad stabilization and the pull move is completely unforgiving of bad stabilization. So can you talk a little bit about the proper pull move and how we should set up a pull move to make sure that we have them where we're actually moving them the way we want and not just cavitating and making noise? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, the pull move, um, first thing we have to realize about the pull move is, is that there's never any kind of a pull involved. Yes. It's, uh, uh, when we talk about lumbars, it's a finger push move. Um, and then the second thing we have to uh, realize is that uh, when we do a pull move, uh, we have to, um, with this different process, we, we have to still stabilize the patient just as if we were doing a push move. So uh, if we can go back to a push move discussion for a moment. With the push move, we, we uh, put our uh, um, pelvis, our ASIS area, kind of right behind the trochanter. Uh, between that and the kind of the gluteal, there's a little dip right there. So we kind of say aim for that ASIS of the doctor to be uh, put right into that position on the patient. And then I, I always talk about, a, uh, think, think about a yellow line going from the ASIS of the doctor straight through the patient's pelvis through the acetabula. And we get this angle um, that that yellow line forms. And... Um, that's the direction of our pelvic stabilization um, on, the, on the patient during our thrust. If that angle changes to going down, straight down into the table or into the floor, or if it goes superiorward, then we're not going to uh, be able to hold the patient still, uh, hold the pel pelvis still in order to uh, get that joint that we're trying to to move to actually move in the way we want it to. A lot of times we can get popping and snapping and stuff, but that's usually because the posterior joints are moving. So um, when we do the pull move, um, we don't have all the weight of our pelvis against the patient, but we still have the same patient. It's the same listing. It's the same vertebra, it's the same line of drive, whether we do the push or pull move. So when we do the pull move, we have to mimic the same thing we just did on, uh, on for a push move. So um, the problem is that all we have for stabilization against the patient's pelvis is the medial condyle of our femur. So when we bend that knee up and place it onto the uh, back of the patient's trochanter, just it's a little, usually just a little bit below and behind the, the uh, trochanter of the patient's where that medial condyle belongs. Um, 
So when we place that there, we have to try to recreate uh, what the weight of our pelvis is able to do quite readily. So, so now all we've got is our uh, long, thin adductor muscles uh, on the inside of our thigh to pull that knee um, into uh, the uh, patient's uh, upper thigh and hip area to mimic what we do with the push move. Otherwise, the patient's going to roll. Um, if you do anything else, that patient is going to roll toward you more. And it's hard to hit a moving target in the right place. Um, so we have to recreate that stability that we have with the push when we're doing the pull move. And so the only way we can do that is to, again, think of that yellow line. But this time, instead of from our ASIS, it goes from the medial condyle, the femur, straight through the pelvis of the patient into the table. Um, and the angle, if I had to um, describe it, I would say it's probably something like a 45 degree angle, I suppose. Um, anyway, we have to mimic that same angle of pressure from our knee into the patient's thigh to hold them still. And if we can do that, then, then it, it's just a matter of pushing with the fingers uh, into the listing rather than pulling on spinuses or pulling on, on mammillaries um, in which we only, we only get rotation on the bone. The only way, again, that we're going to get PDAI to S line of drive on a, on a lumbar is if we're pushing with our contact point, not pulling. Yeah, and so I think it's a very good point that you made that when we go to get deliver the thrust, we do not want the patient to rotate or roll as we're thrusting. That 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 is not effective, right. um, and that's what a lot of people see when they see diverse fire things like that. So they think that we're doing something similar, but we actually want a stabilization. So in creating stabilization, one of the questions that comes up is, well, how do you kick? Well, I don't really kick. If anything, <laughs> the kick is into the table because it has yeah. to mimic what I would do on a push move. So it needs to be into the table. It's probably more of an adductor contraction, but really it's not an adductor. I'm not trying to bring the patient's leg into flexion. It's an end of the table to stabilize the force coming from the hand so that there's no motion except of the bone you're trying to move. Is that correct? That's exactly right there. The, um, I, I always, when I, at the seminars, I always uh, demonstrate from both sides of the tables so that everybody can not only see what it looks like uh, with my hand contact and the knee pushing in, but I, I get on the other side of the table so they can see um, what my stabilization knee is doing. Um, and from that position, they can see that I'm not kicking, you know, I'm not kicking a ball into the table or I'm not jump starting a motorcycle. I'm pushing with my knee. The, the uh, foot and ankle have to be relaxed. Um, if there's any tension in the foot, if there's dorsiflexion of the foot uh, during this process, then the tendency is to either kick down or pull the patient's knee superior. Um, so neither one of those things do we want to do. We want the ankle and foot relaxed. We want all the pressure coming from the adductors pulling the knee in as the body moves forward um, to uh, deliver the adjustment. 
So Gunston talked about the position of the superior foot for the doctor. When we, when we position that foot, after we've got our contact point, we stabilize the patient's shoulder. Uh, when we position that superior foot to accept all of our weight, um, he, he talked about the um, uh, metatarsophalangeal joint area being in line with the edge of the pelvic bench as you look down the edge of the pelvic bench, that that's where uh, that's the anatomical position for our foot is at the um, metatarsal phalangeal joint being on line with the edge of the table. And then when our when we stand up straight and lock that knee, well, I shouldn't say lock, but when we straighten the knee, we'll have between three to four inches of space for that knee to move forward uh, along with the episternal notch of the doctor. Uh, so it's those two things moving forward and ending up in the episternal notch, ending up over the adjustment point that gives us that three to four inches of movement of our of our body mass, essentially of our upper body, to move forward to generate the force of the adjustment. The, the, the adjustment doesn't come from kicking the knee against the patient's thigh. The adjustment comes from the fingers, from the fingertip push. And the only way we can generate enough force to put uh, through our fingertips to push a bone is to have that three to four inches of movement of the body forward, ending up at the, um, ending up right over the contact point and thrusting and uh, the stabilization knee coming in and everything coming together at that uh, one point at the adjustment point. So the episternal and knee bend forward, the stabilization knee pushes forward on through that yellow line into the pelvis, our thrust aims toward the, the, the disc and everything comes together synchronized to hit that um, vertebra at that particular point and in that particular direction so that it moves through the plane line of the disc. And uh, so they, they move so many of them, just they just move much, much easier. Um, they set deeper. You get more of the clunks than you do the cracks. Um, and the, the patients just get better quicker. Chiropractic's wonderful. And again, on the setup with the lumbar, like before, as you set your fingers in, you have to initially drag I to S to get some of that out of there before you Absolutely. start taking E to A. And yet that varies from patient to patient. Some patients are flatter. Some are, and some need a lot of I to S. And I, I ran into that when I first started that I had trouble with it. I couldn't figure out how to get these people adjusted. And then I realized that they had a, a, an L5 that in order to pull it needed a lot of I to S. But when I lifted that I to S, all of a sudden it was like butter. Like this went from being impossible to so easy. So, yeah. um, I, I, I often tell students you gotta be you gotta know how much to lift it before you start taking IDS, and that's one of the keys with us. Yeah, and we get that from the from the X-ray. Yep, exactly. You can't you can't give proper care to your patient without an X-ray. You just can't. Um, I don't care how good you are at motion palpation. Um, you're just not gonna know what that patient looks like without an X-ray. Um, so that that film is gonna show you exactly how much lift, what the line of drive is, what the contact point looks like, 
is there any malformation there? You know, is there, uh, <laughs> um, you know, how thick is the disc or how thin is the disc? Um, there's just so much information that we get from our film um, that shows us how to correct it. Uh, earlier on, it uh, reminds me here, uh, earlier on you mentioned, uh, you know, the more you analyzed x-rays, the better you felt about, how, you know, how you were adjusting and taking care of patients. And I mean, that is so, so, so true. Um, I, I learned a tremendous amount um, when I when I worked with Proxel, when I was an intern, actually, that's where it began. Uh, but when I worked with Proxel, uh, he and I were seeing 800, 850 people a week together. And uh, I was still responsible for analyzing all of the films that we took. And uh, so we, we took thousands and thousands and thousands of films. Um, and uh, I analyzed all of them. And gosh, there's just so much information to learn from looking at an x-ray and analyzing it. It, yeah. it just, um, I just can't emphasize enough the, the need for us to get, get a look at x-rays and, and uh, make sure that we're taking x-rays on all our patients and make sure we analyze them. And um, you'll, you'll learn so much about how to adjust people just by looking at x-rays. Yeah, for sure. And then since we were talking about the lumbar pole, we can very easily just transition quickly into the EX ilium pole because that, that leg stabilization is still the same. It's just a different in contact, but it seems like people have trouble with the ilium pole for a totally different reason, which is that they're not really sure where they should be contacting. And then once they've got a hold of that downside ilium, they kind of pause and they go, now what? Like, where do I go from here? And yeah. I think there's a problem with visualizing what needs to happen. So once you've got that contact and the patient's in position, you've got your stabilization leg and you're ready to make the adjustment, what is the goal? <laughs> what are you trying to do? Uh, yeah, the the um, the EX pull move, um, I, I think the biggest problem there is that, uh, again, most people think it's a pull. <laughs> right, right. They, they grab a hold of the the uh, their fingertips are grabbing a hold of the front of the ilia and um, they're actually pulling it across the joint rather than setting it down through the joint um, so if you if you lie if you take your dry spine and lie it on the pelvic bench in the way a patient would lie on there and you uh, reach under the downside ilia and bring your your thenar or pisiform up to the inferior lateral tip of the PSIS. What is the what, what's the plane line of drive there? Is it pulling with the fingertips and pulling across from the right ilium to the left ilium? Yeah, no. Does that go through the plane line of the of the articulation? No, that's going to jam. No, that's going to jam. That's right. Or does it go down through the articulation? Do you push down into the table through the plane line of the SI joint? Yeah. And uh, of course, it's the latter. Um, so the more we do that, the, the, the um, better and deeper those EX iliums are going to set. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, a few years back, was teaching a, the pelvic bench seminar at, um, in Davenport. And uh, there was a 
young Gunstead doctor there had been in practice uh, for eight years. And uh, we were going over the ASEX pull adjustment. And uh, I discussed this uh, um, at length that morning. And um, so Monday morning, I get an uh, email from him thanking me um, because that's a, he said it was the first time in eight years of practice that he felt he was able to adjust an ASEX correctly. Um, you know, so, um, we need to always be open to, to learning and changing when we're doing, when we're doing something that's not quite right. Uh, you know, when I started putting all my, my books and DVDs together, I started studying Dr. Gonstead's videos again and going over old notes more. And, and I realized that I was doing a few things wrong. And, um, so I made the proper changes and, and, um, you know, so that was, you know, that was 10 years ago. Um, so you, you have to be willing to, um, be open to change and uh, not think that you have it all, have it all a hundred percent. Um, cause we typically forget things, um, things fall by the wayside. Um, and, um, it's always beneficial for us to attend seminars and and talk with one another. Maybe have a few friends you can get together with and discuss cases and things like that. Um, that'll help us to improve day by day and not, not think that we have it all and, and that we can improve. Yeah, I think I think that ex ilium is one is actually one of the hardest ones to really get good at, and that you can always be perfecting it. Um, yep. The problem I had was, especially early on, it's like I wasn't just not good at it. I was probably horrible at it. And yet if the patient comes in and they've got a predominantly EX, there's no other adjustment you can give to fake that. You either get it or you don't. And so I just had like this massive weight on me. Like I have to figure out how to move these the right way or these patients aren't getting better. And I think that's a good motivation, but it's true. You, it's one that we have to work on because I, I don't, there's no other adjustment you can give to fake an EX. I mean, you can try to push a PI and hope that that takes some of the EX out, but it's not the same as being able to pull an EX. Well, yeah, the, 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 the pull moves, uh, I remember Doc mentioning one time, you know, that saying he, he developed the pull moves to really assist chiropractors in, and uh, because they were having trouble with the push moves, um, he, he developed the pull moves so they'd make it a little bit easier for uh, the doctors to um, get the bones to move. Um, but later on, the last couple of years of his life, he kind of regretted it, calling a pull move. He tried to call it the, the finger push move instead of yeah. the pull move. But by the end of it, already... Uh, it already been in use for a dozen years and yeah, <laughs> wasn't, gonna, wasn't gonna be changed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I do a lot of a lot of pushes on the EX though. Um, we um, um, you know you hear a lot that about um, uh, EXs should only be pulled. Um, but the only reason that uh, Gunstead said um, that we should do a pull for an EX um, was because so many doctors were making their um, uh, EX patients worse when they pushed them. 
and they made them worse because they rolled them toward them. Uh, the doctor rolled the patient too, too far toward them when they adjusted. And so they would create more of an EX. Yes. So if yes. you learn, if you learn uh, the concept of keeping that patient's pelvis still when we do our thrust, um, then there's no danger of increasing that EX ilium. Um, but, you know, violate that rule and, and you're definitely going to make your patients worse. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I, I push a lot of EXs as well. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's funny because it, it, there's a difference between that and, and, an I, and a PI or, or even driving a little PIEX, but it's a subtle difference. So I can totally see how it would be very easy. And especially when they're fixated, you hit that obstruction and then you just kind of shoot off to the side. And I can see how it's very easy to, to make that EX worse by accident. Yep. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you for joining me. That was like the fastest hour of my entire life. Um, I have a whole oh, gosh, it is an hour. <laughs> I have a whole long list of questions I could still ask you. So we'll be sure to have you back on some other time and we'll ask you more of these questions because that was great. Like to really dive into some of these that a lot of people really struggle with and kind of address some of the issues of how do we get these hard adjustments better for the benefit of our patients. It's, it's a great thing to do. It's, it's a big deal. So thank you so much for helping us out with that. Oh, you bet, David. Be happy to do it anytime in the future. Awesome. Thanks so much. I'd like to thank Dr. Wood once again for joining me. I'm not sure I even made it halfway through the list of questions I had for him, so we will definitely have him on again to share more of his clinical knowledge. If you're a student or if you're practicing in a country outside the United States and you're looking to grow your knowledge and ability in the Gonstead work, I highly recommend you attend one of Dr. Wood's seminars or his workshops or his boot camps. The hours from his seminars can be applied toward the Gonstead Diplomate, which is another thing that I highly recommend you do if you've been in practice for more than three years. Well, I hope today's conversation has been helpful to you and that it helps you to think more about the details of the adjustment. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time. <laughs>